0: I uh, work on the assumption that all of us are born with an instinct to want to have our liberty. And many times it gets beaten out of us. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare.
1: Welcome, 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 liberty lovers, liberty curious Liberty haters even. Whatever has brought you here to this podcast, I'm just glad to have you here because this is the show where I discuss the ideas of liberty with some great guests. And boy, do I have a great one today in this, the 200th. Yes, it is finally the 200th episode of this very program. And if you've been playing along with the home game, you'll know by now that you can find the show notes featuring links to everything we discuss in today's episode over at lionsofliberty.com slash 200 and this is a very special episode i have for you guys today and that's because not just because of the episode number although it's quite the milestone to have 200 episodes of this program a show which i basically just started on the fly one day when I sent an email to Stefan Kinsella and I had this idea in my brain about maybe doing a podcast at some point for our website, Lions of Liberty, which had, at that time was only written articles, I shot Stefan Kinsella an email about intellectual property. And he said, well, you know, instead of emailing back and forth about this, why don't you just call me up on Skype and we'll have a conversation about it? And that's when that light bulb went off. And I said, well, if I'm going to have a conversation with somebody <laughs> about the ideas of liberty... And I'm thinking about doing a podcast anyway. Well, gee, maybe I should just record this thing and make it my very first episode of my podcast. So you can find that very first episode, my interview with Stefan Kinsella, way back in episode one of this program. You can find it all the way back at the very beginning of your iTunes feed or your Stitcher feed, or you can find it at the full archive over at lionsofliberty.com slash podcast. And now Please don't judge me too much if you do not do go back and listen because eh, let's just say I wasn't quite as refined as a host at that point. Frankly, I didn't even know what the hell I was doing. I just kind of hit record and started talking and I, I think you'll find that that's very obvious from listening to that episode but I like to think that I have improved in some way over time, that our production quality has improved, that our audio quality has improved because I really do strive to bring you the best listening experience that I possibly can with my very limited time and very limited resources because believe it or not, I do have another life in this world. I do have other things I do besides advocating the ideas of liberty, but it is a passion of mine, and this is a passion that was inspired a long time ago, even before the 2008 and 2012 presidential runs of Dr. Ron Paul, who, yes, is my guest on today's program. Before I get to him, I just want to kind of tell a little bit about my story, about how I became an advocate for the ideas of liberty. I've sort of discussed this a few times on the program, but essentially back in the year 2000, I wasn't too political i mean i would follow presidential debates and that kind of thing i even voted for gulp george bush in the year 2000 because well i was kind of raised in a republican household and when you don't think too deeply about politics you just kind of default to your home team and george bush represented my home team why i don't know I don't know, he said something about small government, and I was under the impression that small government was maybe better than big government, and that was about the extent to which I thought about politics at the time. But, you know, luckily, thanks to a guy whose columns I started reading in 2007, a guy by the name of Ron Paul, I started to think about politics in a little bit of a different way. Because my friend, my good friend, Howie Snowden, a guy you've heard on this program before, he used to be a congressional page in high school, and he met this guy named Ron Paul, and he used to go back into his office and talk about it, current events and the ideas of liberty with him. So in college, he one day just told me, hey, Mark, you got to look at this Ron Paul guy. He's really interesting. He really thinks about politics in a different way. So I started reading Ron Paul's weekly column, Texas Straight Talk, before even 9-11, before I really started getting passionate about the way the world works, about politics. And to me, he was just someone that I wasn't even thinking along the ideas of ideology at the time. I was just thinking, well, man, this guy really seems logical. (laughs) He really seems to look at politics in a different way. He criticizes Republicans, but he's a Republican. What? You can't do that. And yet, here he was doing it. Here he was trying to view politics through the lens of individual rights, as opposed to through the lens of, this is my team, I'm the Republicans, or that's the bad team, they're the Democrats. He really looked at things in a way that I found very refreshing, and it started to shape the way I viewed politics, even well before I was very passionate and openly advocating the ideas of liberty as I do today. Now, fast forward to the year 2007. And I see a little article on Yahoo while I'm at work, busy, not really working, because that was before I had a career I actually enjoyed. And I saw this little article, and it said, Texas Congressman Ron Paul to form exploratory committee to run for the presidency. And I just said, what? Are you kidding me? This guy, Ron Paul, this obscure congressman who, as far as I know, nobody's heard of besides me and maybe Howie, and I guess his constituents, this guy's running for president? You got to be kidding me. Why is he running for president? This is not going to go anywhere. That's my first thought. I was excited, but I really thought, you know, no one's going to listen to this guy. You know, he's not in the mainstream. He doesn't speak the way that presidential candidates typically speak. So why on earth would I ever think this presidential campaign was going to go anywhere? And yet I was excited by it. I was excited to see it plow forward. I I was excited to see that it got an initial groundswell of support because apparently there were a bunch of people out there in this country who actually did hold some belief in the ideas of liberty. I didn't even know about these people. (laughs) But apparently they were out there because Dr. Paul started to pick up a little bit of steam. And then we got into the debates. And then we get into the the Rudy Giuliani moment when he called out Rudy Giuliani and said, you know, there is a cause to terrorism, okay? Our interventions overseas... They're not based on individual rights. They're not based on defending freedom. But what they are doing is killing a lot of people. And when you kill a lot of people overseas, it's not the craziest thing in the world to think that some of those people's families and friends and people that live in their communities are going to get upset by this. And when you create a culture of desperation, which many occupied countries feel when they're under American military force or under the force of dictators who the American government supports financially or politically or what have you, When these people get desperate, they turn to terrorism, they turn to suicide bombings. Now, this does not justify the acts themselves, but it does provide an explanation and one that we've really never seen in the mainstream political stage. And this very moment, I think, for many people can be looked at as a point of inspiration, a point where we said, wow, hold on, this guy is saying things you're just not supposed to say in politics, but he's doing it. He's doing it on national TV. People are booing him and he's not taking it back. He's not apologizing. He's just continuing to plow forward and say what he believes to be the truth. And whether or not you agree with him, you've got to respect that. You got to respect that. Even when Rudy Giuliani said, "I would ask Dr. Paul to readdress those remarks and apologize for what he said because I've never heard anything like this." <laughs> Rudy Giuliani's never heard that terrorism could be caused at all by our overseas interventions. Well, a lot of people hadn't heard it at the time. But Dr. Paul had heard it, and he wasn't afraid to talk about it. And now that term blowback is just part of our dialogue. You actually hear modern, mainstream establishment Republicans, like John Kasich, mentioning this concept. And that would never happen if Dr. Paul didn't get into the race. So not only did he inspire sort of a, a new way to look at many issues, a new way to look at politics... But his passion for individual rights, his passion for speaking the truth and speaking what he felt was the truth in a a political arena that didn't really inspire people to speak truthfully for the most part, really inspired a lot of other people to do the same thing, to continue looking into the ideas of liberty, to think about things through the scope of individual rights. And that's certainly what he did for myself. He did that for John Odermatt. He did that for Brian McWilliams. He did that for Dom Sedotti, the guys that I founded this website with, the website lionsofliberty.com that has eventually evolved into this Lions of Liberty podcast. And these are all names you've heard if you're fans of the show. If you've been listening, if this is your first episode, I encourage you to go back into your iTunes feed, into your Stitcher feed, over to the archive at lionsofliberty.com slash podcast to check out our past episodes And now this is sort of the culmination. It's not really a culmination because I'm going to keep going. There will be more podcasts after today. But in many ways, today's interview is sort of a, a culmination of all of my political activism up to this point. I'm getting to finally speak to the man who inspired me to become involved in politics. And without further ado, I'd like to welcome today's guest who quite literally needs no introduction to listeners of this program. He is the man who in many ways inspired the modern-day liberty movement. He inspired millions to learn more about the ideas of liberty, including myself and several like-minded friends who got inspired to start the Lions of Liberty website and podcast. I'm honored to welcome in Dr. Ron Paul. Dr. Paul, the first thing I need to know is, are you ready to
0: roar? always ready to roar for liberty
1: i love it of course you are now Dr. Paul, the first question I typically ask my guests is how they first became interested in the ideas of liberty. And I would say that about 90% of my guests mention one of two names, and those names are Ayn Rand and yourself, Ron Paul. (laughs) So what I want to know is really where you first got your own inspiration from. Is there any moment in time which stands out as first sending you down that path of thinking differently about politics and eventually leading to you becoming one of the most well-known advocates for individual rights out there?
0: No one moment, but I uh, work on the assumption that all of us are born with an instinct to want to have our liberty, and many times it gets beaten out of us. So I think my instincts, as far back as I can remember, even as a kid, that it made sense that I should be an independent person, and uh, I like that idea, but the establishment, you know, whether your schools and the papers and the movies and everything else, sort of beats it out of you. But over the years, you know, I became more interested in the philosophy of it and I would say in the 60s, there were a couple of books that I read that fascinated me. Hayek's uh, Road to Serfdom. And then I read Dr. Chivago and Rand's book, Atlas Shrugged. And these things fascinated me. So I just pursued it. But in the early years, it was pursuing it through economic policy. I was fascinated with monetary policy. And then it just grew from there until, you know, probably uh, in the early 70s, especially when the Bretton Woods system broke down, that I was able to put it all together, you know, put the civil liberty and the foreign policy and the economic policy all together and find out that it was based on one principle of non-aggression.
1: Yeah, and I believe I've heard you mention that that Bretton Woods moment when President Nixon just declared he's severing any connection of the dollar to gold, that's really what inspired you to actually run for Congress and get more involved politically. So what was it about that moment specifically that made you say, "Okay, I can't just sit back and think these things to myself anymore. I have to actually hit the pavement quite literally and campaign and get into Congress and try to change things.
0: Well, it was never with the intent of going to Congress. It was just that I was looking for a place where I could get something off my chest. (laughs) So I'd been reading and studying through the 60s, Uh, not much in college, but during medical school, I started reading more. And as a resident, I had my spare time. That's what I would do. So the predictions were made by the Austrian economists that the Bretton Woods uh, was not viable and would break down. So it was a confirmation, and I remember it so clearly because it happened on a Sunday night. And uh, Nixon comes on and gives this very special speech, and he closes the Gold Wind and puts a 10% tariff on goods. and wage and price controls. I thought, the world's coming to an end. The world's coming to an end. And uh, yet the next day, the Chamber of Commerce endorsed everything that Nixon said, which even baffled me more. So I thought, well, I need to speak out about this. I think they're on on the wrong track. You know, the old question they ask, uh, the politicians ask the people, is the government on the right track or the wrong track? Well, that was the moment I said, they're on the wrong track. So I was looking for a place, but I was practicing medicine and very busy, and this was sort of, you you know, like a hobby, reading about it. I'd rather, you know, have studied economics and then go fishing. So I thought, well, nobody wants to hear me. How am I going to do this? So by 1973, people were lining up to run for the 74 election. And that's when I decided, well, I'm just going to do it because nobody wanted to run as a Republican. Texas was a Democratic state, and so the Republicans had no candidates that were even looking to run. So I threw, I threw my hat in the ring, but the main purpose was just to be able to try to get a message out. So, to my surprise, it did lead to a political career, and uh, I uh, was, uh, I think, you know, fortunate that I could do two things. I did practice a lot of medicine, but I also got to to be involved in politics. And right now I spend my time doing the very same thing that I started in the 1970s, and that's to promote the cause of liberty.
1: Dr. Paul, many people have very, very vivid memories of your confrontation with Rudy Giuliani during the 2008 election cycle, when you pointed out in a debate that 9-11 and other terrorist acts do not exist in a bubble, that actions have consequences, and really brought the concept of blowback, the idea that our overseas interventions are the main cause of terrorism, into the modern political lexicon. Now, that particular moment can be seen as a turning point, I think, for how many people currently view foreign policy, and you've generally branded yourself as a non-interventionist when it comes to foreign policy. What I'm curious to know is when do you feel it is appropriate for a government to intervene overseas? Because you did vote for the authorization of military force in response to 9-11, so clearly you do see some role for a government to intervene in, in certain circumstances. So what set of guidelines would you have to determine whether a military action is, is actually just or necessary?
0: I think it's when we're attacked and 9-11 was an attack and it was an attack on our soil. It's a tough vote, you know, just as, uh, you know, Pearl Harbor was an attack and it would be hard to say, well, you shouldn't retaliate. How you retaliate and not understanding how we got there is a, a different subject because whether it was uh, – the Pearl Harbor attack, which, uh, if you understood it, you should have been able to predict it and prevented it, same way with nine eleven. But once you're attacked, you sort of have to have a response, and the uh, authorization was to deal with the people who were directly responsible, and the countries directly responsible for the attack. The crime, though— Turned out to be, and I shouldn't have been surprised, and i wasn 't that the authority given under that resolution it was totally abused and still being used. you know they still use that to invade different countries, it was used to invade Afghanistan, it goes on and on, so uh, governments cannot be uh, trustworthy so i 've concentrated more on trying to prevent these problems, and uh, blowback is a consequence of our foreign policy, and hopefully you don't have to be reactive, but as far as going overseas i uh, You know, I said so many times in the campaign, bring them home, bring the troops home, whether it's uh, Europe or the Middle East or Korea, uh, it's just more trouble for us. If we stay there, it's going to bankrupt our country.
1: Now something you've mentioned before and I believe you actually offered this up in response to 9/11 is this concept of letters of mark and reprisal where we would actually just basically commission somebody to go after the actual bad guys as opposed to you know invading entire countries in response to something like that. So can you kind of just detail a little bit more about what something like that might entail and how that might be a more appropriate response to a terrorist act? Yeah,
0: and that's probably the only time it was brought up uh, since the early part of our history, because the letter of marker and reprisal was uh, written by the founders into the Constitution to take care of incidents overseas that didn't require an entire war, and it was mainly against piracy. And our office resurrected this and introduced the resolution. Of course, it didn't go anywhere, and that was to uh, say that Congress gives the authority to go after one particular individual's and you can actually, you know, give authority to other people than the army and then the navy because uh, when they used it in the early years, you actually allowed people to be, uh, you know, they were like being deputized, that people, if you had your own ship, that you could operate and become a military force if somebody tried to board your ship. It actually was recognized by more than just one nation. So that was one way that uh, if we'd have followed that course, we could have reduced it instead of allowing them to abuse this force and use it to occupy and remake the Middle East.
1: Uh, Dr. Paul, you've often also advocated for a gold standard in the past when it comes to monetary policy. You you wrote a whole book entitled End the Fed, referring to the Federal Reserve System. I'm just wondering how you would envision the Federal Reserve being ended in reality. I mean, we can talk about ending the Fed all we want, but is there a realistic scenario where you could see that the Federal Reserve System being ended politically? And if so, how could we transition into a different system, whether it's a gold standard or a free market in money?
0: you could end the Fed in a a more deliberate fashion by uh, just reducing the power to monetize debt and change the rules. And you could do that with also the introduction of competing currencies and have a transition. But I don't believe that's going to happen, even though I advocate it and show that that's an explanation on how you can get rid of the Fed without a calamity. But you can't just say that tomorrow we have a different president, we have a different Congress, and they repeal the Federal Reserve Act. And in the Fed, that would be a lot more chaotic than what we have right now. But it will end. It's going to end in a much worse condition, and that is uh, when the dollar, you know, is destroyed. And that can happen suddenly. And uh, it would be – if you look at what happened uh, – on uh, 2008 and 2009 and multiply that by 10 or 15 or 20 times, type of emergency, but destroying the dollar would destroy the Fed, and they would lose credibility. Then the opportunity would be to uh, replace it with something quite different or not replace it at all. I think that is more likely to happen than to get the right kind of people in Washington, because I think the people who maintain the power in this country, the secret government, are able to control the political process. So it's not going to get passed by Congress and signed into law. But the uh, the audit, the Fed, is something we worked on. Even that is not likely to really pass. But at least one thing that we have noticed in the last five or six years, there's been a tremendous increase interest in the Federal Reserve. So a lot of people know the Fed is the culprit. And that's been my goal is to explain to as many people as possible that when this crisis, as it continues and gets worse, they shouldn't look to uh, free markets as the culprit. And we've been doing that for too long, and there's still, that we have a socialist running right now, and there's too much freedom, too much market. And in the depression of the 1930s, it was said that there was too much capitalism and freedom, and the gold standard caused the depression, which was an absolute lie. So what we had to do is change people's minds to realize that uh, In the next crisis, this is the time that we restore the confidence in the dollar by, once again, uh, relating it to gold. Uh, Dr.
1: Paul, there is a certain segment of the libertarian community that is very vocally anti-politics, some to the extent that they openly oppose any political action whatsoever. Now, obviously, you spent many years in Congress, so you can't be completely opposed to political action. But I'm just curious, how would you respond to those who would openly discourage political action in the pursuit of a more freer, more liberty-leaning
0: society? I say to each his own, (laughs) you know, let them do it. They're not hurting me by not participating. So it's up to the individual. But if they don't participate at all, I might have some criticism that they ought to do more to promote the cause of liberty, because some people just get involved in education, you know, and that to me is probably, I would think that uh, if I have accomplished anything at all, it's probably been more contributing to education and understanding about monetary policy and foreign policy. So it was the educational benefits I had by having a congressional seat. So it was sort of, in a minor way, a bully pulpit form. But if a person says, you know, I know all this, you're completely right, but I don't feel like doing anything about it, you know. That's okay. You're not hurting me by not doing anything, but I think there's a moral responsibility on individuals who discover what libertarianism is all about and why it's important out of their own self-interest why they should promote the cause of liberty. But I get questions frequently from the young people on campuses. What do I do? I agree with you, but what should I do? Should I run for Congress or whatever? And I just tell them, do whatever you want to do, you know, and be creative. Some people have radio talk shows, you know, and promote liberty. And uh, some people run for office. Some people support other candidates. Some people deal strictly in education and then just promoting uh, sound economic policy.
1: Yeah, I heard a few people are even doing this weird podcasting thing. So you really can go in in any direction you want. Dr. Paul, one more thing I wanted to ask you on behalf of one of my colleagues, John Odermat. He is the host of our weekly Felony Friday show, which focuses on the criminal justice system. He recently had his first child, a lovely daughter, Ruby. And he wants to know if you have any advice for libertarian parents raising children in today's society.
0: Well, to me, it's still education and understanding, whether it's your children or your neighbors or your friends or the people you go to church with. It's always trying to persuade people that there's a better way. And I think understanding... The principle of aggression and non-aggression, and what the difference is, and uh, I think one of the arguments that I've used uh, successfully very often is, you know, the Bastiat principle. You know, governments can't do anything you and I aren't allowed to do. If, if, if we can't rob our neighbor, we can't rob our neighbor through the IRS to redistribute wealth. And so it's a moral principle. People need to understand it's a moral principle, and uh, the young people are very open to this, and uh, it's pretty amazing to me how young some of the teenagers were when they came to my congressional office after I ran for president because uh, I swear they had a better understanding of monetary policy at the age of 14 than any member of Congress or most members of Congress just because they paid attention because I don't think it's that complicated. So we all have a responsibility first to ourselves and then to our loved ones and certainly we can have influence on our children. So uh, I think uh, the thing that I personally disapprove of, but it doesn't bother me all that much, and that is the people who won't participate at all and they can't figure it out, and they're always trying to escape the situation. So I think that uh, the bottom line is changing people's mind and finding out what the proper role of government should be in a free society.
1: I think the general theme I'm getting from you here is that regardless of the exact path you choose, it's important to keep this conversation going in whatever way makes the most sense to you. And you're certainly doing that today with your current projects. So, uh, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time out to join me on the show. As I mentioned, uh, you are in very many ways uh, the inspiration for what we're doing here at Lions of Liberty. So, I really do appreciate that. And uh, before I let you go, why don't you just give everybody the roundup of your current projects? I know you're hosting the Ron Paul Liberty Report, you've got the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Just let everybody out there know how they can find everything you're doing and how they can help. <laughs>
0: well, those are two websites there. And uh, the com is a website that we're working on. The Institute for Peace and Prosperity is the other. But there's another one that we don't get a lot of conversation on, but it falls back to the issue of, of education. I mentioned early in our discussion that uh, people have a natural instinct to want to be left alone and that we have libertarian instincts, and then they get beat out of us in the government schools. But we have a uh, a Ron Paul curriculum. It's a homeschooling program, which uh, long-term might be the most important thing that uh, I've done is to encourage, uh, you know, the homeschoolers. And Gary North and Tom Woods helps me out on that a lot. And it's uh, not huge, but it's steadily growing, and there's a lot of interest. It's very possible. And I think this is one thing that people can do. You know, quite frankly, my wife and I weren't inclined, even though it wasn't as necessary, you know, 50 years ago (laughs) to homeschool kids. But if anybody... He is able to do it, even though it, our program doesn't require a lot of parental supervision. But the RonPaulCurriculum.com is a worthwhile website to look at.
1: Well, Dr. Ron Paul, like I said, thank you so much for joining the show today. Thank you for all the great work you're doing for the cause of liberty and, and keep up the great work. Wonderful. Nice to be with you today. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed my brief conversation with Dr. Ron Paul. It was a pleasure to finally speak to the man, to finally speak to the person who inspired our activism here at Lions of Liberty, who inspired us to look deeper into the ideas of liberty and to think about these things further. I mean, like I said at the beginning of the show, and most of us, like myself, were raised in sort of the uh, political team mentality, the Democrats versus the Republicans, and we're sort of forced into one side. But the problem with that is we can't really have a rational conversation when we're just rooting for our teams like it's a football game or a baseball game. Now, there's nothing logical about rooting for your baseball team. There's nothing logical about rooting for your football team. It just happens to be who you like because of a city you grew up in or a team you were a fan of as a kid. And there's nothing wrong with that because, well, sports games don't affect our lives. Nobody gets thrown in jail for a sporting event, although I'm sure there are incidents where they do. But the point being, when it comes to politics, when it comes to this conversation about our rights, about when force is going to be used by government, well, we can't just have that team mentality. We need to engage a little more rationally, a lot more rationally than most people do currently. And that is why I do this program. That is why I strive to advance the ideas of liberty through this show. And while Ron Paul definitely inspired our activism, it inspired us to become the Lions of Liberty even. You know, while Ron Paul inspired that, I don't necessarily agree with every single position he's ever held, with every vote he's ever made, with every word that he's ever spoken out of his mouth. But what he did do was change the political dialogue and introduce the concept of individual rights. I have literally never heard another politician bring up the idea that individuals have rights in a political debate. I'd never heard that before, Ron Paul. I thought about it to myself. I thought, why aren't these guys ever talking about the rights of an individual in this conversation? And yet Ron Paul did that. And the fact that he brought that and so many other issues to the forefront, whether it's the war on drugs, whether it's our foreign policy, he needs to be commended for that. Now, one area of disagreement I have with Dr. Paul, and really the disagreement may be more on the labeling, the semantics, if you will, because he uses the term non-intervention quite a bit. But as you heard in our interview, I mean, he's really not opposed to the idea of the military intervening when necessary. You know, just like if I see an old lady being beaten on the street, I have the right to intervene to stop this obviously criminal act taking place. By the same token... In theory, you know, that concept can apply anywhere. Now, I'm not advocating for the United States government to run around the world arresting bad guys and bombing bad guys and being the world's police, but at the same time, we need to promote the concept, the idea that individual rights should be defended, and often we need to defend individual rights with force. It's that simple. When there are bad guys out there attacking people, Innocent people, those innocent people should be defended and need to be defended. Now, that does not mean our current system for doing so is good, and it does not mean it's funded properly. It doesn't mean that they actually have that intention, because by all accounts, our foreign policy is a freaking mess. Our foreign policy has nothing to do with defending individual rights. Our foreign policy has a lot more to do with political machinations, with... Enriching certain companies, getting them contracts in certain areas, providing them access to natural resources, these are not legitimate reasons for intervening anywhere. They're just not. But there are reasons to intervene in life in the world <laughs> there's reasons to intervene when you're attacked there's reasons to intervene when others are attacked and for that reason i don't like the term non-intervention and we can say it's semantics but semantics are important the words we use are important if you tell people you're not allowed to intervene well i mean that's one of the biggest criticisms i get i get people that say you know i, I like a lot of what libertarians think but i'm just not into this whole non- intervention thing and that's because the term just doesn't add up it doesn't hold up to scrutiny Now, it might be a proper prescription for our foreign policy, knowing what we know, knowing what we know about how unprincipled the actors in the federal government are. I mean, we have millions of people in jail for owning a freaking plant in this country. So clearly, no politician that can support that, that can support the war on drugs, can legitimately stand up there and say, but we've got to go over to the Middle East and defend the rights of other people bullshit. I mean, come on. Some of this stuff is so easy to see through, but we have to separate the modern political reality from concepts, from actual principles. And frankly, intervention on behalf of others, that's a principle. That's a good principle. You should be encouraging others to intervene. I'm not going to harp on this all day long. It's just one area I wanted to address. But the point is, I probably wouldn't even be addressing this with you guys right now if it weren't for Dr. Paul's inspiration, if it weren't for having someone in there speaking the truth about what is going on in the world. Pointing out the obvious truths. Yeah, that if you bomb people's houses, you're going to create terrorists. If you put people in desperation, you're going to make them desperate. You're going to create more violence when you initiate violence. So I hope that many of you, many of you might even be listening for the first time today. I hope that you kind of see... Why this is happening, why I'm doing this show, why myself and my great friends, John Odermatt, Brian McWilliams, Dominic Sadotti, why we started this website, why we've got other friends of ours, Rico, Howie, JB, all the guys that you hear on our podcast all the time. You know, we're not doing this to get rich. We're not getting rich. Trust me. I actually made the decision about today's show, which by all means may have been one of our more listened to episodes of all time. I made the decision not to sponsor today's episode because I didn't want to interrupt this conversation with Dr. Paul. I wanted to put this whole thing out there. Now, of course, since you're still here, since you're still listening, there are a few ways you can help out. If you like what we're doing here at Lions of Liberty, the easiest thing you can do is to shop through our Amazon link at lionsofliberty.com Amazon. Just click on that thing once, bookmark it, do all your Amazon shopping through there. These guys sell everything, so you may as well use them. They deliver it right to your door. You can't go wrong. Anything you buy there will cost you no extra to do through that link, but it will get us a little bit of a kickback. If you like Liberty gear, Liberty t-shirts, You can go over to libertymaniacs.com and use the discount code Lions of Liberty to get 10% off your order. And if you're sick and tired of your health insurance, lionsofliberty.com slash health. You can find a great alternative known as health sharing with our great sponsors at Health Excellence Select. So there, I did my sponsorship rip. <laughs> I still did my business in the show, but for the most part, I'm just happy to have you guys listening. I'm happy to have you guys here being a part of this conversation because I think it's a very important conversation. Obviously, I would not waste countless hours of my breath on this if I didn't feel it was of the utmost importance. So I thank you all for tuning in because we would never get to 200 episodes if I didn't have listeners. We simply wouldn't. If we had three people listening to this thing, I would have stopped doing it a long time ago. If you are a fan of this program, I encourage you to subscribe over on iTunes, over on Stitcher Radio, and please leave us a five-star rating and a great review. That helps us boost this show up, helps it get in more of those earbuds out there and keep this conversation going. You can also join our private Facebook group if you're on Facebook by searching for the Lions of Liberty Forum. That is the name of our private group. We also link to it in the show notes for the show. Again, that's at lionsofliberty.com slash 200. Find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. Find us on Twitter at Lions of Liberty. If you have feedback and aren't a social media fan, feel free to shoot me an email, mark, M-A-R-C, at lionsofliberty.com. Any way you guys want to join this conversation, we encourage it because I'm not just here to dictate the way the world should be. I want to have a dialogue. I want you guys to be involved with it. And that's the way we're going to do things. We're not gonna win people over just by shouting from the top of our lungs as much as I may do that at times. We're gonna win people over by having a rational dialogue, a good conversation I feel like I had a good one here with Dr. Paul today, and there's many more to come here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Now, one thing you heard Dr. Paul mention there is the secret government, and that sounds like this shadowy, crazy conspiracy, but it's really not. It's really a term, a term that a future guest of mine, the next guest, by the way, this Wednesday on episode number 201, I'm going to be speaking with a guy named Mike Lofgren who spent 28 years working in Congress as a congressional aide for Republicans, and he has written a book called Deep State. Now, this is his term for referring to the same thing Dr. Paul referred to, the secret government. And this is not a shadowy cabal that smokes cigars in a dark room somewhere and plots the world's destruction. No, it's much more apparent than that. It's really the term to refer to all the organizations and lobbyists and the various groups that really pull the strings in our government, that make things happen, much more so than any individual legislators do. So I'm excited to look into that. Please do tune back here on Wednesday. And of course, this coming Friday, we'll have another edition of John Odermatt's Felony Friday, a weekly look at the criminal justice system. Guys, there is just no shortage of programming here in your Lions of Liberty podcast feed. We encourage you to subscribe. We encourage you to share it with your friends. And overall, just become a part of this conversation. Until next time, folks. Live long! And live free.